Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and there before the altar, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful for your word, grateful for the way that it instructs us, grateful for the way that it teaches us, grateful for the way that it gives us a standard. It reveals to us who you are. It tells us about you and about ourselves, and we need to understand both of those this morning. We need to know you and understand you and see you better than we do. And Lord, we need to understand ourselves better than we do. We need you to work in our hearts, to open our eyes of understanding, to open our ears for hearing, to give us insight that without which your involvement, we would not understand who we are and who you are. So encourage us this morning with your word. Would your spirit use your word in our hearts this morning? We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning's message, we're going to focus on anger. How many of you struggle with anger? How many of you know angry people? I saw that hand. However many people are in this room, what are the percentage of you that struggle with anger? You know, sometimes it's, it's one thing to have to stand up here and say difficult things and to assume that I'm talking to the person next to you, not you, or maybe I'm saying difficult things, but not to the people in here, like somewhere else in a different part of the world or somewhere outside those walls. Anger is not that case. When we, when, when we need to look at the things that Jesus says about anger, this will be an experience, an emotion that is very familiar, very common to, to all of us. We express it in one way or the other, sometimes rightly and most times wrongly. In one of the books that I read, uh, the authors said it this way, that if, if fear is maybe the most common human emotion that we could talk about, that's equivalent to negative emotion in that sense that we all understand and know, Anger might be the most dangerous, very, very common. The, the power and energy, the, the amount that can be accomplished through anger, both for good and bad, particularly for bad when it's not used and harnessed rightly. Anger is one of those extremely dangerous emotions, the damage that it can do to our own souls, the damage that it can do in the relationships around us. And so therefore, we're talking about something that's extremely important this morning for the health and well-being of us as individuals, for our relationships with one another. But ultimately and supremely, it, it's something that's important in our relationship with God. Our relationship with the divine is spoken into and influenced by 
our anger and interaction with it. So let me read a few verses from Proverbs. We have a few of these on the screen. Just In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs was helping people understand how, how do you go through life well? How do you live life skillfully with wisdom? And there were very stern warnings about anger. So let me just read a few of these to help you understand the, the impact of how important this is. I think we have Proverbs chapter 14 on the screen for you. And if Proverbs chapter 14, starting in verse 29, says it this way. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Those, those who have control of anger and get there slowly is someone who has great understanding, great skill at living. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So those who blow off the handle, they exalt a foolish lifestyle. And that's how dangerous anger really is. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18. The next one, just another chapter later. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Have you ever seen angry people who are just going around and create more anger? They create more conflict. They're hot-tempered, and all they do is go around and stir up strife. This is, from a negative example, how important anger is. But let me show you a positive example from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16 and verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Did you catch the wisdom there, the goodness? And catch how counterintuitive it is. Often, anger fools us and deceives us into thinking anger is about control. It's about might. It's about power. Something is not right, and in my anger, I'm going to make it right. We think we contain might there. Maybe we could even take a city. But God is saying that, that people who are slow to anger actually have more might and power. Anger does not deliver us what it promises in that sinful sense of, of getting might. It's, it's, not, it's not the angry who are able to conquer the cities. It's those who rule their spirit. They're the ones who truly have might. And from, from a significant standpoint, this is why we want to, this is why anger is so important. This is why I'm asking you to pay attention this morning because of how crucial this is in understanding ourselves and understanding who God is and understanding who he's made us to be. And so we want to think about this very, very carefully. As I'm talking about anger, what am I talking about? Some of you might be tempted to think, and, and easily what comes to our mind is those red in the face loud outbursts, people who uh, uh, have, have a violent temper, they fly off the handle, there's outbursts of anger. That is indeed what I'm talking about this morning, but it goes much, much further than that when we understand Jesus tanking. So here's some of those hot fly off the handle. I'm going to read some descriptions that help you understand. See if you see anger in yourself this morning, in your words, in your characteristics, in your habits. This is called a small book about a big problem. It's 50 meditations on anger, patience, and peace. I will give this to any of you. Our church would supply this with you if someone wants to come and grab this from me this morning. So not any of you. First person who would like it, our church will give it to you after the service if you come find me. But the fly off the anger, you, you quickly recognize that. People People who are jealous, there's wrath, war, murder, qu murder, quarrels, explosions, rage, envy, hate, vengeful, attacks, winning the war, violence, oppression, abuse. We quickly recognize that as anger. But what about some of the more subtle ways that anger works its way into our lives? What about covert anger, right, when we're disguising it? We use sarcasm. We say, just kidding. Maybe grumbling or complaining or gossip that is fueled by anger, defending ourselves. Maybe we're just annoyed. Maybe we're frustrated. Maybe inside we're smoldering in our spirit. These are all anger 
working its way. It's the seeds of anger that will develop into some of the hot anger that we talked about there. What about being irritable, entitled, eye-rolling, feeling superior to others? How often is that motivated by anger? Then, then there's a kind of cold anger, right? There's a kind of anger that's just as across the line as blow-up-in-the-face anger, but it's very cold. This is when we give the silent treatment. We withdraw. We're indifferent. We give the cold shoulder. We're detached, criticizing. And, and we work to disguise our anger in these senses, right? So sarcasm says, you are stupid and I am not. That's what sarcasm says and then adds, just kidding, to the end of that. And we enjoy our self-righteous vantage point. Do you see that in yourself? What about that grumbling? Press into that. When we are grumbling and complaining, we are speaking the common refrain of anger. I want something and I'm not getting it. That can sometimes be motivated by anger. I want and so I'm going to grumble when I don't have it. Now, gossip is, ang anger is very closely connected to the idea of judgment. You're going to see it in our passage this morning. So gossip is the judge who publicizes his or her verdict and tries to convince others to pronounce the same verdict. You see that ever in your life? Let's go back to that cold anger, the silence treatment. When we withdraw and silence, that's nasty. There are forms of punishment. You will not show your favor to the wretched soul until he or she forgives and makes amends. You ever find yourself treating others in that way? Now, perhaps you just look at things and you use these kinds of words to describe, disguise your anger. Perhaps you're fooling yourself and saying that, uh, that your anger hides behind these innocent-sounding words. I'm just being honest. Let's call a spade a spade. You need to hear what I have. I have truth that you need to hear. And really what's motivating some of that is anger. Do you find these kinds of things taking place in your life? Is that the way that you see anger expressed? Is that the way that you live out your life? What does anger do, not just to ourselves and our relationship with God? Our passage will speak about that. But what does anger do to our relationships around us? Think about this. Those who live in, in anger, what does, how are the relationships around you affected? In the book Untangling Emotions, Alistair Groves and Winston Smith have this to say. If you zoom out from the angry person and pan toward the person on whom his displeasure rests, you will find tears, tense silence, anxious placating, or angry return fire. Habitual anger leaves strained or broken relationships in its wake. Friends and family are offended or hurt and often tiptoe around the angry person. Distrust surrounds anyone given to anger. Where people are hesitant and guarded, you are probably not far from an angry person. The angry individual herself or himself, however, We'll see the world quite differently. Anger feels so right, so noble. Thus, while the people in the angry person's life pull back from the scorching heat that intimidates them, the person they retreat from feels like a martyr. The angry person's world is full of idiots, jerks, self-righteous people who don't play fair. If you find that you always seem to be surrounded by fools everywhere you go, beware. You may be blindly stumbling down the slope toward a serious problem with anger. Do you find yourself characterized by any of these descriptions of anger? This morning, we're not just talking about those who fly off the handle with a violent temper and angry words, though that is certainly included in what we're describing. Anger seeps in in so many different ways, and it's why we need to press in to a very difficult and very uncomfortable topic this morning. But there's a catch. 
Two catches, two, two caveats I want you to be aware of, be careful, be on guard as we try to go through this this morning, okay? As we go through this, you will be tempted, uh, I, uh, if you're anything like me, to listen to, to what we're trying to say, and you may be tempted to think, yes, I know who he's talking about. I know so-and-so needs to hear this on anger because they're an angry person, right? Okay, let me say something about that, but before I do, uh, let, let, me, let me say something else. Let me back up because I don't want to misinterpret what, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm going to say about that. I need to say something about that, but let me stop and recognize that some of you have been or are being sinned against by people in anger. And I get that. I recognize that. We sang this morning about looking forward to feasting in the house of Zion. There will come a day when God wipes away every tear, but some of you are living with people's unrighteous anger. You have been sinned against. You are being sinned against. And, and the devil wants to, to cause you to hide in shame, perhaps even twisting it to make you think that somehow this, this violence, whether physical or verbal, is somehow your own fault and that nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to know that what I'm about to say does not negate the fact that something needs to be done about the sin you are living in, right? That, that someone is sinning against you, and this doesn't excuse that. And let me encourage you, there's people in this church that, that love you and would want to help. There are legal authorities that could step into your situation. And so if you, if you are currently or have been, um, especially if you're currently living through someone's angry outbursts, and if it's risen to the point that you need help, speak out get help. There are people that love you and, and don't misinterpret what I'm about to say next. Um, for those of you that have been sinned against in anger, even if you're in one of those terrible scenarios, you, you will be tempted as I'm going through this this morning to say, see, see, that's what they need to hear, right? And, and, and you will be tempted if you're not careful. The devil is so good at using other people's sin that then we ourselves can become angry about someone else's sin. And we can become self-righteous and, and perhaps even our responses in themselves become angry and sinful. If you're sinned against, that's sin. It's wrong. It's hell seeping into this world. But it does not justify your own sin. You cannot get angry in response to someone else's sin. At least you should not if you're desiring to live the way that God expects. So be very careful. As we go through this sermon, you'll be tempted to say, well, this is, this is so-and-so. Someone else needs to hear this. And if you're not careful, you will excuse your own anger thinking of someone else's sin. The second thing that we need to say as you go through this, here's what makes this so dangerous. Angry people rarely recognize that they're angry. Right? That's fundamental to anger. Anger says, I'm right, you're wrong. Rarely do we recognize that we might be the ones in the wrong. Sin blinds us. Anger has a way of doing that, especially if there's some grain of truth to what it is that we're angry about. We might rightly see a such scenario, but in our sin, our anger is blinding us to the fact that, that we are the ones who have a problem with anger, that we are the ones who are in sin. So as we go through this, I'm begging you, tune in realize that, that you might need to say that your anger is a bigger problem than you realize and not just pass it off as, as something someone else needs to hear. Be, be willing. Do you have someone close enough in your life that later today, later this week, you could say, Am I, is there anger that I don't see in my life? And you could ask this Christian brother or sister for input in your life because unfortunately angry people are some of the quickest to deny their anger and never admit that they have a problem with it. So pay attention, go slow, let's engage carefully as we try to think through this passage this morning. All right? 
With that introduction, let's look at the passage in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse 21. And we need to back up and catch a couple of these verses as we go through it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Let me stop right there because there's something very significant in that phrase. We need to understand why is Jesus starting out. He says, you have heard it was said to those of old. And then look at verse 22. He says, but I say unto you. You're going to see uh, with a little slight variation six times in the next 20 some verses through the end of the chapter, six times you're going to see that, repeat, that repeated. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You'll see that. And what is Jesus doing? What is he helping them understand? There's certain things they've heard, certain teachings they've gathered, and Jesus is coming in with his own authoritative teaching, trying to help them understand what they need to know. So in order to understand why is Jesus doing this, why is six times he's going to come and try to help them understand something they've heard? You have heard it said to those of old. You've heard from many times from long ago, this was the teaching, but I say unto you, he does it six times. Come back to verse 17. Here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now remember, where are we at in the sermon? Jesus has walked through his introduction. He's walked through the Beatitudes. He said, listen, this is the blessing that is upon those who are Jesus' people. The the, the Christians live a certain way, and here's their life. Who's the ones that are close to God and favored by God? It's the one who are poor in spirit. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And and Jesus was totally upending everything they thought about what it meant to be close to God. See, there would have been those who thought, who who is blessed by God? Who is favored by God? Well, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the teachers of the law. They're the ones that know what it means to be close to God. But when Jesus comes in, and he totally upends everything they thought about what it meant to be favored by God and to be blessed by God, some would immediately conclude, wait a minute. Jesus is coming. He's doing away with the law. He's completely getting rid of the old system. Jesus is going to come and he's going to say, look, all of the Ten Commandments, do away with them. I've got a new way to righteousness. Well, Jesus expressly wants them to know, don't go there. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. They point to me. If you understand that, listen, don't relax any of my commandments. You're supposed to understand what they meant. And so he says in verse 21, in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the goodness that you needed, the righteousness you needed to enter heaven, to be a Jesus person, to be favored by God, you had to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. If you and I were there listening that day, we could not wrap our minds around that. They're the best of the best. They're the ones who perfectly know God's law. How in the world could we ever be better than them? So what's Jesus going to do? The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who continually said, this is what God expects. This is what God requires. They were the ones who were the teachers of the law. Now think of, remember the law was written in Old Testament Hebrew. Not every one of the Jews would have understood that. The common language of the day was Aramaic, probably is what this was being spoken in. If you were a Jew and you wanted to know what God said, you had to rely on the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones who told you what God said. They interpreted it. It's not unlike the situation that went on 500 years ago with the Reformation. 
People who went to the church, they heard Mass in Latin, even though they didn't speak Latin. If they wanted to know what God said, they were reliant on the priests to tell them what God said. Why did the Reformers work so hard to get Scripture translated into the common language? Because they wanted people to have the authoritative understanding of God's Word, not just the priest's interpretation of it. This is similar to what Jesus is doing. Listen, you have heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. This is one of the Old Testament commandments. They weren't allowed to kill. They weren't allowed to take life. That, that God gave the authority to take life in certain capital punishment scenarios, but they weren't allowed to just willy-nilly take life. They weren't allowed, because man was created in the image of God, murder was a direct violation against God and the image of man that was in that person. Therefore, they were not allowed to murder. But Jesus comes along and he tries to help them understand, listen, you don't understand what that law meant. Jesus does not come and correct the Old Testament. Six times he comes and helps them. He corrects their misunderstanding of how they interpreted and applied the law. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they worked, they were such people that they desired to be righteous, they desired to be seen as good, and they said, listen, if the law says thou shalt not murder, as long as I haven't murdered, I can check that box. There were other laws that were in the Old Testament system and they worked very hard to come up with a system of rules. Listen, if we want to make sure we don't murder, let's build a fence around that law and make sure we never violate this additional fence that we have created so that we never get close to the other law and then we'll build another fence to make sure that we couldn't do that, right? The command was to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy. That was God's law. They came up with all kinds of rules about the number of steps they were allowed to take, about how much work they could do simply because they didn't want to violate God's law. Well, Jesus comes to them and he says, listen, you have heard it said, but I say to you, remember, he's not doing away with the Old Testament law. He's saying, if you would have really understood it, here's why you would have never come to some of the situations. Your hearts reveal that you never understood why God gave the law in the first place and what it pointed to. You see, this is what Jesus says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So that was their understanding of the law. You murder someone, you end up in court. Don't murder. If you don't want to end up in court, don't murder. Most of them could walk through their days. I can check that box. I must be righteous. Me and God are good because I've never murdered. But what does Jesus, how does he interpret and help them understand? Listen, if you understand that mankind is created in the image of God and that when you rise up against this person, you are attacking the very image of God in that person, if you understand that from the taking of human life, it will also affect the very words that come out of your mouth. Because here's what Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, listen, murder. In other places in Scripture, we see the connection between murder and anger. You don't have to just actually physically take someone's life to deny the goodness of God in that person and to attack the image of God in that person. When we are angry against a fellow man and when we are unrighteously angry, what are we doing? We are saying, I'm right, you're wrong, you fool. How could you ever? Why would you ever? Why don't you see it my way? I'm right, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? And we let our words and actions and attitudes completely deny the goodness of God in this other person. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, 
When you go around with insults on your lips, when you call people fools, one of the words used that your Bible might even use instead of translating it like-minded, when we, when we say raka, well, that was, a, that was a word that was designed as an insult. One of the words that was used had to do with this idea of being empty-headed, nitwit, good for nothing. When we get to the point that we, when people wrong us and in our minds, whether or not the words come out of our mouths, what, what, what is wrong with you? How hard is this? Why can't you see things my way? When we're, we're thinking and experience these things, we're, we're insulting these people who were created in the image of God. And Jesus says there's a judgment coming for that. There's a trial. You will face a more serious... If you murder, you end up in human court. You call your brother a fool, there's a divine judgment awaiting for you. With the, the one who created that one that you're calling a fool, the, one who, the, one, the fool, the one who loves that one, you're attacking the creator and the image of the creator who made this person. That's why anger is so violent. That's why anger is so bad. Why is it that we get angry? If you go to the book of James, and I don't have time to turn there this morning, but I've... James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Why is it that there's so much fighting and conflict in the world today? You've heard me say this before, but the way another pastor and author said it in this question, when, when James says, why are there fights and quarrels and conflict among you? He does not say it's because of those people that you live with. He does not say you get angry because of the knuckleheads that are in your life. He says that there's passions and desires at war within us. We want what we want, and that person's standing in the way of what we want, and so we fight and we quarrel. And that's what leads to the war and the conflict. That's, what, that's why anger is such a dangerous thing. Now listen, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus himself at times was angry. Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees fools at one point. But remember, uh, that anger, that insult has to do with a moral judgment. I'm right, you're wrong. Jesus himself possessed that authority. He's called us as his followers to, to use scripture and to carefully make discernments about people's life. But we don't go on a rampage against evil in the same sense. Some of your Bibles say, coming back to Matthew 5, we'll come back to Matthew 5. Some of your Bibles say that he who's angry with his brother without a cause, especially the King James Version translates it that way. It's, it's almost certainly likely that that was a later scribal edition, that someone trying to interpret the meaning added the without a cause. And so while that's probably not what Jesus had originally said, it almost certainly captures the heart of what he was saying. That, 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 when, that we, when we are unrighteously angry with others, you see, anger can motivate us when we, when we rightly see an injustice that God's glory is being violated. There should be something that wells up within us from an anger standpoint. When you think of abuse, when you think of sex trafficking, when you think of addictions, th these things ought to motivate anger in the sense that causes us to act justly and rightly. When you look at the life of Jesus Christ as an example of righteous anger, when was it that he was angry? It was never when he himself was personally suffering. It was always when the glory of God was unrighteously being attacked, being sl slighted. That's when Jesus 
used righteous anger to defend the weak, to, de- to defend the cause of righteousness. When you think to your anger, how much of your anger is because of the fact that God's rules, God's kingdom, God's plans, God's program is being slighted. Most of us get angry because our plans are being slighted. I don't get what I want. I want and I'm not getting and therefore I get angry at others and I respond in ways that, that with angry words, attitudes, actions. In a few verses, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. And he's going to start by saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In anger, this sinner in unrighteous anger is rising up and saying, My will be done. My kingdom come. You're standing in the way of what I want. And I'm going to, whether through attitude, through word, through silent treatment, through verbal outrage, I'm going to attack you and the character of God in you in anger. And this is what Jesus says. Listen, yes, you shouldn't murder, but if you understand... That, that the image of God means we shouldn't uh, take another human life for no reason. It also means we shouldn't use angry words, attitudes, and thoughts. When those thoughts enter our mind and heart, it's, it's, it's that murderous anger in its seed form, and we have a problem with God at that point. We can no longer check the box and say, righteous, good to go. I won't end up in a human court. Who cares about the human court at that point? you may end up in God's divine court for your anger against fellow man. That's what Jesus wanted them to understand. Then he kind of moves in the passage. and He says, listen, if you get it, if you understand that, that these angry words are just as bad as murder, here's it, let me, Jesus says, let me illustrate it for you in two practical ways. Not only will you not get angry, but you'll care really strongly about doing the right thing. So not only will you not do the wrong thing, meaning not get angry, you'll also work really hard in situations of reconciliation where there's an offense that's occurred. You're going to realize that anger is such a dangerous, bad thing. You want to work really hard to make sure it doesn't come up in, in your situations of relationships, especially if you're the one who has offended and caused the problem. Look at what Jesus says. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, listen, worship is so important that if there's this relational offense, and here the scenario is, you're the one that sinned. You're the guilty party. There might be a brother who's angry with you, and if you realize how dangerous anger is, if you realize how dangerous this conflict is, you won't keep showing up to worship, bringing your gift. You'll go and make amends. You'll try to see if you can reconcile this. That's how we understand when, that, that if we take God's commandment to not murder seriously, when we realize that we're wrong, we'll go quickly. Other places of Scripture give us instructions for when we've been sinned against. Here, this is the guilty party. There's other places when you've been sinned against, you still go. It's still your responsibility to go. Always, Scripture the places the responsibility on you to go and reconcile because this is such a dangerous scenario. This is such a serious scenario that we realize we, we, don't, we don't want to leave these unreconciled relationships out there. Now, some think this is particularly in the context of a believer, and the next illustration is more secular society at large. Whether or not that's true, I'm not certain, but certainly the principle applies, and it helps us understand then when he goes to the next scenario. He says in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. So now here's a new scenario. You're again probably the offending party. There's someone who's upset with you, and they're taking you to court. 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus here is helping people understand. Listen, this, this is so serious. The divine relationship is at stake. See if you can reconcile. Don't let anger fester. In fact, it might get to the point where you need to go to your accuser and say, listen, I was, I was wrong. Can we reconcile? Can we, is there something we can do? Because you realize that, 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 that anger should not go on unaddressed, that unresolved conflict should not go on unaddressed. Now, this concept of being paid, getting out until you paid the last penalty, that was a common for the day, a common judgment in terms of the earth's courts of the day that offenders would be put in prison and they would have to work off their debt. The, this, this verse is not implying the concept of purgatory. There, there are some who teach and they do injustice in the interpretation of this passage that somehow God is saying in the divine judgment we're there until enough money has been paid to get us out of that judgment. That's, that's pressing this illustration too far beyond what Jesus, he was not trying to intend to show us how eternal judgment works. He was saying, listen, if you think the earth's courts are bad and serious when it comes to relational conflict, God's judgment is worse. God's court is serious. Far more serious than any of the earth's court systems. And so you need to come to terms quickly with your accuser. So we will understand how dangerous, we will, we will evidence, we will show that we understand how dangerous anger is when we work hard to come to terms with those that we've offended. Not only will we not get angry, but when we sin and we're in the wrong positively, we'll, we'll come to our brothers and sisters and say, listen, I, I need to come to terms. Something happened. I'm asking to make this right. Let me give a little bit of practical instruction. How do we go about making wrongs right? It does not just mean, when, when you've sinned against someone, those of you who parent toddlers, you get to watch this play out multiple times a day or week, right? When, 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 when sibling hits sibling and there needs to be a reconciliation, right? Unfortunately, siblings aren't the only one that do that in their home. Brothers and sisters in the church do it all the time, right? What happens when, when a misunderstanding has happened, when a sin has happened? How is it that you come to terms quickly? If you realize that anger is serious and perhaps you have done something that might be causing a brother or sister to harbor bitterness and anger, how do you make amends? Let me encourage you to be specific, number one. Here's what I mean by that. Often when two people are sitting down or having a phone conversation or they're talking through an offense, what the easiest thing to do, because this is deeply uncomfortable, it's very humiliating, it's very difficult to say, I'm wrong. Anger makes us want to say, I'm right. And so we try to see what's the least number of words I can use and still put this back together. And we, we might, rather than taking ownership of the wrong, we might say something like, I'm sorry if you were offended. I, I apologize, I'm sorry if you felt that way, that's not what I meant, right? I'm sorry you were offended, I'm sorry you were hurt. And then the other person feels this, what do they do with that, right? And now they're bound to say like, uh, it, it's okay, it's, it's okay, it's okay. And then the two go their way, has reconciliation happened? There's been, I promise you, there's been no reconciliation. Maybe a baby step, but there hasn't been. Why is this important to be specific, right? What am I saying if I just say, I'm sorry if you felt that way, I'm sorry if I offended you? I'm really saying, listen, I'm sorry that you have a problem with me. I'm sorry that you were hurt and whatever's going on in your head is not what I meant and so I'm sorry that you're wrong. 
right? That's in essence what's going on right there, right? We would never use those words, but what, so now what do we do? See, when there's an offense, that person holds a debt against us. Forgiveness needs to happen. If I've sinned against someone, they need to be able to release that debt. They need, in order to come to terms, in order to reconcile, I need their forgiveness. And so here's what has to happen. I'm sorry that my words were hurtful. I'm sorry that my tone of voice did not reflect how much I care about you. I'm sorry that my choice of words was inappropriate. It's very specific. Will you forgive me? You've got to ask for forgiveness because that other person, whether or not they forgive you, you can't control, right? But this person, in order to reconcile and come to terms, there's a debt that they've got to be able to release. They've got to be able to say, yes, forgive you. And if you're in that situation, you're the one who's offended, once you forgive, it is not easy. It is a debt that hurts. The scars and the sin might run deep. You have to continually come back and say, I release that debt. Would you be specific? Would you ask for forgiveness? Would you practice hard at these reconciling conversations? And be careful. Some of you right now may have been sinned in ways such where you say, yep, see, that didn't happen. Right? And if you're not careful, you will now get angry saying, see, that person didn't forgive in the way they didn't ask for, they didn't reconcile. And if you're not careful, well, now anger's going to well up in your heart. Oh, this is tricky. This is, this is subtle. But this is how we show we understand the gospel, right? When we work really hard at this forgiveness, reconciliation stuff, when we're careful with, with making sure that we don't let improper thoughts, yes, people are going to sin against you, but don't sin back towards them, or else we just show an evidence that we don't understand what it means to be a Jesus follower. So this is difficult. This is weighty. How, how are we going to do this? See, if the scribes and Pharisees didn't understand what it meant to not murder, how are we as people going to have an even more exceeding righteousness? How are we going to understand? How, how are we going to love people even when it hurts? How are we going to show forgiveness? How are we going to ask for forgiveness? Well, you see, this kind of righteousness can only be provided by the person of Jesus Christ. You see, part of what Jesus was doing was saying, Listen, I've come to fulfill the law. There's not a one of you that could make it through and check that box saying you haven't murdered because all of us have been angry with brothers. We need a better righteousness. We need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's what he's going to say. You have this quote in your bulletin this morning and I want to read it by a man named Craig Keener. He said, God never wanted, merely, God never wanted people merely to obey rules. He wanted them to be holy as he is. He wanted them to value what he values. This does not come naturally. Loving people this way, asking for forgiveness, rooting anger out of our lives, it doesn't come naturally. It won't happen until we are made holy by the person of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that works in our hearts to help us show this kind of love to others, to keep our attitude in check, to work quickly towards reconciliation. It's only the gospel that can cause people who have been sinned against to still, out of love, love the offending party. I didn't say don't address the sin. I said to still, in love, love the offending party. To not let our own hearts be overtaken with bitterness and rage and anger. God has to do this in our hearts. It's part of what he was offering. You see, when Jesus came, he, he understood what it was like to be sinned against. 
He understood what it was like to, to love enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And as his enemies put him on the cross to pay the punishment for our sins, to bring us this holiness, to make us new, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That, that's what motivates our relationships. That's what changes the way we treat one another. That's what rules our hearts and attitudes. Listen, if you're here this morning and you struggle with anger, the primary thing you need is not some kind of tactic for anger management, though you might find it helpful. The primary thing you need is heart management. You need a new king in charge of your life. You need Jesus to come and say, listen, I'll make you holy as I am holy. I will give you new affections, new desires. I'll take away bitterness. I'll take away rage. I'll take away malice. I'll take away a self-righteous desire that makes you think you're better than everyone else. And Jesus says, I'll be your king. I'll lead you in this new way. And that's what he offers in salvation. If you're here and don't know Christ as Savior, turn to him. He loves you. He has come to offer forgiveness and to give you a new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and ask God to do this work in our hearts. Father, you are good, and we don't nearly see enough how good you are and how you've reflected your goodness in others around us. Father, we too often want to try to take your place and be angry with others. Father, would you, would you root out unrighteous anger? Would you help us to seek reconciliation quickly? Would you help us to be people who evaluate, who, who show the importance of our understanding of anger such that we keep relationships on proper terms? Father, if there's some here who don't know Christ as Savior, may they turn to Christ in salvation. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.